Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm as glad as always to have all of you uh, listening out there to our show today. Um, fallout continues, of course, from the shocking video that we all saw starting on Friday evening on the beating of Tyree Nichols. Um, it's being talked about across the country, here in the state legislature, on Capitol Hill, and, and certainly um, among people uh, gathering for uh, a variety of reasons, uh, asking each other what could have happened that led to such a horrible crime. And we're going to get into that uh, uh, during our show today in a little bit. But first, let me introduce the panel. Tamar Hallerman is with us, as she is every Tuesday. She's the senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. How are you, Tamar? Hey, Bill. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Chuck Williams is uh, back with us as well. Chuck, a veteran reporter down in Columbus, Georgia. He's the go-to reporter, certainly for political leaders who want to uh, be in the spotlight with him and sometimes don't want to get the questions that Chuck asks them. He's at WRBL-TV in Columbus. Thanks for being here, Chuck. Always a pleasure, Bill. Welcome to foggy Columbus. Yeah, it's that way in uh, Metro Atlanta today, too. Kendra King-Mammon is uh, here again. She is a political science professor at Oglethorpe University, also associate provost, so an official at the university. Kendra, thank you for joining us. You said you're just a little under the weather, so I'm really grateful that you're putting up with us today. Glad to be here with the two tucks, Chucks. See, I'm already flopping <laughs> a little bit there, but I'm glad to be with you all today. <laughs> Thanks. And the other Chuck is Chuck Cook, Charles Cook, one of the country's top immigration lawyers. And by the way, we learn more and more when we talk to Chuck off the air about the farm that he now has in Tennessee. Chuck, you truly are becoming as much a farmer these days <laughs> as an immigration lawyer. <laughs> Uh, I have to tell you, being a farmer is a lot more fun than being an immigration lawyer these days, too. I'll bet that's right. Um, a little later in the show, um, as we mentioned in the headlines, I'm going to ask you to help us understand what this new policy or this parole, so-called parole program that President Biden has put forward to try to ease the crisis at the border. Um, we're just getting an awful lot of pushback, and we will get to that a little bit later in the show. But Tamar, before we uh, talk about Tyree Nichols, with, with you here, we have to ask, what are you hearing about how soon we might expect Judge Robert McBurney to issue a ruling on whether he's going to allow any of or the whole uh, report from the special grand jury to be released? What do we think is going to happen here? 
Well, I think I've heard every rumor under the sun about what could be in this ruling and and when it could come. There was a hearing last Tuesday um, where we heard from uh, representatives from the media, including the AJC, who, of course, want the, the report to be released. And we heard from the DA's office who said that they want to keep it private for now to kind of keep their options open for a potential prosecution. Uh, McBurney said he was going to think it over um, and come to a decision. We're expecting it any day now. It could very well come today or tomorrow. Um, and he mentioned there wouldn't be any surprises. I'm not quite sure what that means in terms of a ruling. I, he did say it means that the report is not going to like drop out of thin air into our laps. What it, what it could be is he kind of tips both sides off to say, hey, I might you know, want to release this next week. If you want to appeal, let me know. Um, we're not really sure what it'll be. Maybe he'll agree with the DA's office and agree to keep it quiet until March 15th or whatever date you may want. Um, we're not sure. So we're waiting to hear about that. We're also closely watching the DA's office to see if they mm -hmm. proactively come forward with any indictments, which would be a much easier path for them, frankly, if that's what they're looking to do. Um, it would get awfully messy if McBurney releases the report and they're not quite ready um, with any potential indictments. So that could also come at any time. And so it's been a bit of a holding pattern as we we all wait to see what comes out of uh, McBurney's courtroom and what comes out of the DA's office. I, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the two parallel uh, potential uh, developments. I mean, as we all have, have said on this show and as you've reported, uh, Fonnie Willis uh, does can act at any time she wants to, if she wants to uh, issue any indictments at all. That that doesn't depend in any way on this question of whether the uh, special grand jury report should be released, right? And the DA all but said at that hearing last week that indictments are, are coming. We don't know who um, she's looking at. And of course, maybe she decides she doesn't want to, but she very heavily hinted um, that indictments would be coming down the pipeline. And it would really simplify things if she were able to get out ahead of it. Of course, there's many ducks that have to be put in a row and we don't know where she is in a potential indictment process. So maybe she needs more information before she could do that. But it just starts getting really messy if the report or portions of it come out. We start seeing certain names being highlighted by the grand jury. And then people like me start hounding the DA constantly being like, what are you going to do about person X, Y, and Z? It's much easier should she just say, hey, I've secured indictments against person A, B, and C. Right. Um, okay. So definitely closely watching for that. Absolutely. Thank you uh, for that. Meanwhile, uh, I should just point out that she might be beaten to the punch if, in fact, she's looking at an indictment against Trump himself. The Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg, has his grand jury already impaneled and is beginning to call witnesses in a uh, case to determine whether or not there was a illegality in hush payments paid by Trump or representatives of Donald Trump to uh, uh, Stormy Daniels. That's going back a few years, but I think we all remember that uh, uh, the National Enquirer was part of an effort to uh, uh, make sure that Stormy Daniels would not tell her story about her alleged relationship with Donald Trump publicly. There was a transfer of money. So the Manhattan DA is looking at that. That's another area where Trump has a, 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 to be uh, uh, watching very closely to see what happens. Very quickly, Chuck Williams um, this all comes at a time when Donald Trump has now held his first two 
real campaign events. Uh, he was in New Hampshire and South Carolina over the weekend. So his campaign is now absolutely underway. And it just strikes me that law enforcement, if, if people like DAs in Fulton County and Manhattan want to bring charges against him, they and DOJ for that matter, they've got to start moving. You know, that's a very good point, Bill, because I think when you look at this, he's clearly, the former president is clearly in campaign mode. Is he in campaign mode as a serious run to be the the nominee and eventually the president in 2024? Or is he in campaign mode to try to slow down the political wolves that are chasing him right now, the, the legal wolves, the, the the grand jury in Atlanta, the DOJ, the, what's going on in New York. I mean, there's all sorts of legal dominoes that are going to fall here. And, they're, and if Atlanta is one of the first ones to fall as far as a, on a criminal, on criminal charges, I think it will not only impact his campaign, but the whole campaign landscape, as well as what happens in the other jurisdictions. All right. So we're going to watch to see how uh, certainly Fulton County particularly uh, develops in the days ahead. Uh, Kendra, let's turn to the latest news and and reactions to it in the Tyree Nichols case in uh, Memphis. We spent a lot of time yesterday talking about just how horrifying, shocking it was to see uh, the the beating that was beyond brutal that led to Tyree Nichols' death. And um, yesterday was the first day that the Georgia legislature was back in session, of course, since that video was released on Friday night. And uh, House Minority Leader James Beverly uh, went to the well, and um, he, he spoke about the what he called the culture that led to the beating And he said this, our culture, the Georgia House of Representatives, will not stand idly by while injustice prevails. I'm calling on this House, the Georgia House of Representatives in general, and the Democratic Caucus specifically to hold hearings and to pass legislation so this tragedy does not happen to our state. Now, and then he went final, he says, morality, and this is important, I think, Kendra, morality cannot be legislated but behavior can be regulated. Um, we're going to have to watch to see what he has in mind in terms of specific legislation, but we understand his point in general. Absolutely. First, I think it's encouraging to see our state leaders uh, stepping up to say we must do something. It's past time to do something uh, and that we will be proactive in doing that. So I applaud our leaders. Um, I think this tragedy is of just... Um, numbing proportion. Uh, To be quite honest, I could not uh, watch the entire video. Um, It was just too painful to watch um, a man uh, 100 yards from his mother's home uh, to to yell. Um, And and more so than that, just um, with everything I've read, the commentary uh, that was being said by the people who are entrusted to protect and serve us um, as this man fought for his life. um, I, I think the one thing that uh, just is so numbing. It, it took me back to Dr. King's last book, Where We Go From Here, Chaos or Community. And when you have law enforcement agencies saying, I hope they um, they should stop him or I, you know, haymaker, that guy. 
it, the, the man's inhumanity to man is at an all-time high right now. And I think when you add the racial dynamic to it in this particular case, it's nonsense, nonsensical, but it's also um, an indi indication of systematic racism and what I call um, nihilism at its best. So the self-hatred you saw these Black officers engaging in um, to an innocent man who looked just like them, it lets us know that we're in a state of emergency in our nation. Um, Chuck, uh, so we'll see. I'm not quite sure what uh, uh, the minority leader has in mind in terms of his legislation, but we do know that um, Congress has had a bill uh, that it could have moved on at any point. And it, it, was, it was introduced in the aftermath of the vicious murder of George Floyd. Um, and it was called the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act of 2021. The House passed it. It went over to the Senate where it's languished. And now, of course, as a result of the beating video that we saw Friday night, uh, people are saying we've got to get this passed. And, and let me just mention a couple of aspects of the measure. Um, uh, it increases accountability for law enforcement misconduct. It restricts the use of certain policing practices like chokeholds would be an example of that. It wants it calls for more data collection in terms of incidents where there is uh, alleged police brutality. And and it establishes a series of what what the bill calls best practices and training uh, requirements. So that's the general bill that now Congress is being pushed to act on. The Nichols family has called on them to do that. But it strikes me it also plays into what's happening at the Atlanta Police Training Center controversy, where the question becomes, the protesters think that that training center is going to be about the militarization of police, whereas many of the supporters say, no, no, we do need to train police officers in how to perform their jobs humanely. So it put, put all that together and take of it what you will, Chuck Cook. Well, let's first of all look about the Senate. Uh, the chance that the Senate is going to pass a bill that will pass the House is about 0%, which is not going to happen. Um, Tim Scott's getting, getting a lot of pressure. He was working with Cory Booker uh, uh, last year on that bill, and he just walked away. Uh, and he's getting pressure to come back. I just don't see them have any basis to do so. Um, I mean, I think the the proposals that were in that bill, and I think probably the most important is the 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 parts of the proposals that attempt to change the culture, because this you're not going to legislate your your way out of fixing this problem. It's a cultural issue that needs to change within the policing environment and how policing should be done. I mean, we spent the last forty years giving the police lots of military weapons and lots of military training. Military doesn't work on the streets of America. And it has to be a different approach. Uh, put that in the context of the new policing the policing facility they want to build here in Atlanta. Um, what they need a better facility. I mean, not only going to be talking about what we need a better facility. I think the, one of the big issues is where it is, and how big it is. But in, until you have places where you can train people, and then laws or funding, most importantly, that help you better train people, this is going to keep happening. Tomorrow and then Chuck. 
looking back to the Senate's negotiation last uh, Congress, where it, it really seemed to break down was over the, the thorny issue of qualified immunity and basically how much officers can be protected if they're accused of misconduct. And then, you know, you start running aground of the police unions, which traditionally have been very powerful political entities. And it becomes such a just thorny issue to navigate as a politician. And Chuck is absolutely right. It's going to become impossible. Anything that could pass the Senate is not going to be able to pass the House. Kevin McCarthy has the narrowest of majorities. We're about to launch into another presidential primary season. Um, we have many Republicans now, you know, leading Republicans taking more of a law and order approach as opposed to more of that kind of Nathan deal. Let's kind of go dive into criminal justice reform and see what we can do. So it feels like the tides have turned away, but maybe, you know, perhaps this really shocking, disgusting video of what happened to Tyree Nichols will, will be enough to break through. And I understand that his parents have been invited to the State of the Union um, mm -hmm. next month. So, uh, you know, maybe this will be a, a moment to come together. But as somebody who's covered Congress for a long time, um, if they couldn't do it then, I, I am very skeptical they'll be able to do it now. Uh, President Biden has invited the uh, parents to sit with, um, with I guess, Mrs. Biden up in the gallery. Chuck Williams? You know, the Atlanta Police Training Center is not just an Atlanta issue. There was a protest here in Columbus, uh, appeared to be a number of Columbus State University students. It was Friday, about 11 of them protested uh, the what they called cop city the reason they targeted here is brassville and glory that has the contract with the police training facility construction contract has a large presence here in columbus constructing a number of buildings they were near a brassville and glory construction site but what was interesting was because of what happened in atlanta the previous week and the the violence that erupted there was the largest police presence I have seen for an event in Columbus since the old School of the Americas protest down on the Fort Benning Gate. At one point, I counted 120 uniformed Columbus police officers walking down Broadway. This was Friday afternoon at 3.30. Um, there was a lot of social media buzz about it. It created this its own weather system, uh, but nothing happened. Very peaceful protest. But you know, the police, the the mayor, who is our public safety director, you know, said the response. If there had been trouble, the response was there to deal with that. But it was stark, and it was all. I mean, they were the 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 protesters were beating drums and just sort of in the middle of a median. They weren't disrupting traffic. They were holding a sign. They didn't have a permit, so they were very careful, it appeared to me, not to exceed the 15-person limit. But it told me that what is happening statewide with this, or happening in Atlanta with this training center has a statewide impact. So, um, by the way, uh, yesterday our panel gave credit to uh, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens and to Governor Kemp. Kemp had, had, had put on standby a thousand National Guardsmen over for, for the weekend uh, in case there was real trouble. Um, it didn't happen. And the panel gave credit to both of them 
uh, because they were not out on the streets. The National Guard was held back. So we didn't have the kind of uh, law enforcement presence that could be seen as intimidation that you're talking about, Chuck. Kendra, the obviously one of the themes of the last couple of days has been we're talking about the five officers who have been charged with murder are themselves black. And, and, and so there are those who say, well, if they're black, then racism isn't really an issue. And you, you've heard this, obviously, argument. And I want to read something quickly and then get your response to all of it. In, after Freddie Gray was killed by um, uh, officers in Baltimore, those officers were uh, uh, black, too. So, um, um, three of the six that were charged and eventually acquitted were uh, black. And, and so the question arose there, as it is in this case, well, what does this tell us about um, the way in which uh, uh, police officers deal with people in the black community? And here's what a lawyer for uh, Freddie Gray's family said at the time. If you go into the neighborhoods of Baltimore right now and ask whether the race of corrupt or untoward police officers matter, they would say absolutely not. Absolutely, it is the race of the suspect that matters most. It's the historically biased culture of policing that killed Nichols, he said, updating it to what happened to Tyree Nichols. Talk to us about this, Kendra. Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, what we see over and over again is that because there has been the criminalization of the black man and the black man um, historically as the boogeyman from slavery up until 2023 um, on the news and, and, you know, television shows, you know, this whole gangster mentality, you know, hip hop culture, you know, this this super predator as the black uh, man was described years ago, it still is with culture today, and it still permeates even within African-American society. I think about years ago when Jesse Jackson said he was walking down the streets of Washington, D.C., and he heard some footsteps coming up upon him and how he was relieved when he turned around. And those footsteps were those of a person who was not an African-American. Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 hope. And from a political perspective, we talk about symbolic versus substantive uh, leadership, where you would assume that people who look like you in leadership or in law enforcement would give you the benefit of the doubt. But what we find over and over and over again is that there's a difference between symbolic leadership versus substantive leadership. Tyree may have been better off being stopped by white law enforcement uh, agents, Mm. officers this past, uh, when that happened, given the brutality. Here's my issue with what happened a few weeks ago. Um, It wasn't that they even stopped him unjustly, because we still haven't gotten an explanation about that. It wasn't even perhaps that they used the pepper spray if, in fact, he was resisting arrest, we allege, right? It was the way in which they beat him repetitively and cruelly over and over again, almost as if they were high-fiving and getting energy from each other as they barreled this man to death. And again, I think that's an indictment, not just on institutional racism, but individual choices. I do not want to let these individuals get off just on the fact that they're mimicking a racist system. At some point, these individuals who took an oath of office have to own their own immorality and brutality. And let's hope they're not doing that to people they love at home when they're off the clock. 
Thank you uh, for those observations. Um, Chuck Cook, all of this plays out at a time when Governor Kemp has made it clear that law and order, he hasn't used that phrase that was so charged back in the, <laughs> what, 80s, 90s? 80s, uh, 90s. Nevertheless, he, yeah, he, nevertheless, he's certainly talking about a get tough on crime. We're going to go after gangs uh, in the street. Uh, we're going to stop the revolving bail uh, system that lets uh, criminals back out to perpetrate more uh, uh, crimes. Um, and, and it's going to be interesting to see how that debate unfolds in the context of what we watched in uh, uh, Memphis, whether the rhetoric is going to, whether Republicans are going to support this effort, and the Democrats who will too, how they're going to change the way they approach this. Well, I think the bigger question is, what is his plan? I mean, w- that you're going to fight crime. Well, we already have laws that fight crime. Are you going to make sure you have more prosecutors? Are you going to build more jails? Are you going to hire more public defenders? But you, yet you want to cut the budget for that stuff. So it doesn't make any sense. It, it obviously makes political sense to talk about this because clearly Governor Kemp has greater aspirations now that he won re-election. He, I don't think a young man like him is done in Georgia. Uh, and so he wants to put this, and this is going to be a platform for the Republican Party for the next election. But what is the actual answer? That that's That's what I want from a politician. What is your answer to the problem? And we don't have one yet from him. On that note, um, George Cheedy, the independent journalist, was making a great point recently that the the problem is we have politicians who are, you know, they want to show their constituents that they're responding um, to all, you know, to increases that we've seen in crime or people feeling unsafe. And so they'll approve things like these scorpion units or red dog, what we used to have in in Georgia, without really thinking about the impact it's going to have on the lives of people who are, who are going to, whose neighborhoods are going to be, you know, patrolled even more. Um, and so it creates this, this really tough situation um, where these problems are so complex and it's going to take more than just approving a really tough on crime unit that's going to patrol the streets. Um, and, and sometimes just our political incentives aren't aligned with the complexity of the problems the world faces. Chuck Williams, last word uh, from you before we go to break. Of course, that Scorpion unit in Memphis has now been disbanded, just as Atlanta's Red Dog unit after some really horrific, especially incident in which they broke into the home of a 90-plus-year-old woman by mistake and killed her. Um, so these units are uh, will watch to see, again, how aggressively um, units that are out there to fight so-called street crime are going to be able to be. But Chuck, your last thoughts on how Governor Kemp, you imagine, now addresses this issue in this context? Well, I think one of the ways you can look, they're going to address it, are addressing it is the bill that was passed last year and it's in law, the gang task force that's operating out of the attorney general's office. We have a gang problem in Columbus. Columbus is no different from other parts of the state. The gang task force was stood up in in the early July. They've had 50 cases they've taken where they have had indictments. Of those 50 cases, eight of those indictments are here in Muskogee County. And Attorney General Chris Carr and the governor will point and say, "Okay, we're going after it in the court system. And they're picking up cases and they're moving them out of the DA's office and putting them on a state level and prosecuting these gang cases. I think if you talk to the politicians and to Governor Kemp and to Attorney General Carr, that's what they'll tell you they're doing about it. 
All right, we got to get to our first break of the show. Uh, we'll be back with more in just a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Chuck Cook, Kendra King, Maman, Tamar Hallerman, and Chuck Williams with us. Chuck Williams, very, very quickly, because we got a lot to talk about. You were being shadowed. We just saw walk into the picture that we can see uh, by some Columbus State University uh, students. I would just ask you to pass along to them one word, which is watch what you do and make sure you don't commit the same mistakes that Williams does. <laughs> That's great advice, Bill. Michelle, Mary, and Eric are here. They're, they're just starting a long semester. Okay. <laughs> they're, they're following the guy in Columbus. Um, all right. Chuck Cook, uh, President Biden has been hammered over and over again about the way things are going at the uh, southern border. And polling in communities around the country continues to show that while it rarely is the number one issue on people's minds, immigration remains something that this country is terribly concerned about. Would you please explain to us this new plan that President Biden is getting in place but is being criticized by Republicans and Democrats alike for this so-called parole plan? First of all, what is it? And why is everybody so upset about it? Back in 1952, uh, the last time Congress really fixed immigration law, uh, they created a program um, that allows the president to parole people or allow them into the United States on a case-by-case basis. Uh, That parole program has been used by every president, except for Donald Trump, uh, over the last 70 years, uh, effectively for certain conditions. The problem that uh, President Biden has had is that our laws do not reflect the reality of the 21st century because they really were last fixed in 1990. So he is faced with people, particularly from Venezuela, Cuba, and Haiti, literally fleeing their countries, and now Nicaragua. Now, Nicaragua, Cuba, Haiti, and Venezuela, those are all um, issues related to politics. Haiti is just that crisis that Haiti has been for a long time. Uh, And what they've been doing is literally transiting to Mexico, either by flight or by walking, and then just coming to the border, uh, using what in our law is the ability to say, I am afraid, I come to a port of entry, I am afraid, I want to apply for asylum. Congress said, you can do that. And part of that is to be then led into the country and then processed for asylum. But we don't have enough judges. We don't have enough prosecutors, we don't have enough courts, and we don't have enough jail space to handle 2 million people a year. So the number we're looking at that that really did this in last year. So the Biden administration says, you know what? We can't handle you coming to our border. So we're gonna say, stay in your home country and apply online using a US citizen or permanent resident who says they will support you if you come to the United States. This is a this is actually a cutting edge type of policy that has worked very successfully to almost eliminate 
the illegal entry of Venezuelans in the United States, his first first tried for Venezuelans, and has dramatically cut back the numbers of Haitians, Cubans, and Nicaraguans. Now, in conjunction with that, to make the program more effective, uh, he has said, look, if you don't take, if you're from one of these countries and you don't take advantage of this program, we will immediately deport you back to Mexico, and Mexico will immediately deport you back to your home country. And that is exactly what's happening today. Now, it's odd. Democrats don't like this, and, and some Republicans, because they feel it's not really allowing people to take advantage of our actual asylum laws. And Republicans don't like it because there's still people coming in um, and then applying for asylum. But the president is literally, at this point, out of options. This is This is the last card on the deck. This is what he's got. From now on, they're going to enforce the law. They're going to deport more people. But only Congress can deal with this problem. And as Tamar mentioned earlier, it's highly unlikely that Congress will deal with this problem. Well, first of all, thank you for explaining what this particular plan is all about. Um, Kendra, as someone who teaches political science, I, I think of it as a, a, a job where, among other things, you essentially, um, as you talk about the systems of government, whatever else, um, you, you, there's an implied understanding of a certain faith in government <laughs> that, you know, our systems are there to do, accomplish some purposes that are valid and important. Um, it, this is another example of the intractable nature of the immigration crisis because no one is willing to address it in a way that they that is not partisan, that doesn't demonize the other side. We get nowhere, Kendra. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, immigration policy has proven to be over the last uh, few years um, a zero-sum game. And so no one wants to get their hands dirty. No one wants to to play ball, if you will. And so, again, what what's interesting, and, and, and Chuck, that was such a scholarly lecture. I can't wait to have you come into my <laughs> classroom, okay? Um, <laughs> what we find, and, and, and what I, I believe the president has done, is added another level of bureaucracy to a process that was already full of red tape. Uh, at the end of the day, our system cannot handle the demand. And I think that's a bigger question that again, um, someone has to handle. And hopefully at some point, those 535 men and women we've elected uh, to do their job will pick this back up. But I think we're gonna have to hold our breath for another two years at least um, before we see any, any realistic movement. Chuck is shaking his head. He's saying probably Kendra about five more years. Well, Tamar Hallerman, as someone who covered Congress for a number of years, you've certainly seen efforts at dealing with immigration in a holistic uh, way and go nowhere, Tamar. And the problem is that there are splits even within the parties. It's not like it's Democrats versus Republicans. And it's an issue that motivates the base on both sides. So so candidates are incentivized to, to not compromise at all and to really stand their grounds. And even the folks in the middle, <clears throat> excuse me, who want to codify popular programs like the DACA program um, are kind of stuck because there still isn't even enough consensus to do that. Um, and so I'm really pessimistic that Congress will be able to do anything on this issue, even the bare minimum on immigration has completely fallen flat in the last decade plus. You know, Chuck Williams, I am struck by the fact that this weekend, um, in the wake of the Tyree Nichols video being released, we are hearing a lot of language 
about humanitarian treatment of people. How do we treat people as individuals who deserve respect and uh, uh, to be uh, given their rights to live their lives as they would like? You know, we're hearing a lot of that language. And we look at the southern border where we have thousands of people literally living on the streets trying to get into the United States. And I don't think we recognize the humanity, a lot of us, of those people as well. Bill, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. If you can't look, when you look at those images in El Paso, the people on the streets, outside of the shelters, because they're afraid to go in in many cases. When you look at those images that are coming out of El Paso, a great American city, the humanity or lack of humanity can't go unnoticed. And that, I mean, and, you know, I appreciate what you just did, Bill, to tie it to the most horrific, one of the most horrific beating videos we've ever seen. Because when you look at that, the thread that connects them is lack of humanity, lack of treating people with respect. And, you know, it's, it's a I haven't thought of it quite that way until you just said that, but, but thanks for doing that. Chuck, Chuck Cook, it's what we're talking about really is people who are being treated as political pawns. Yeah, this, this is this is unfortunate um, for the people that are involved in the process. People I meet with every day, people that are seeking the protection of the United States. Now, there are clearly economic refugees coming, but um, many of them are actually fleeing for their lives. Um, I'm not giving you a great example. Yesterday, I met with a couple from Nicaragua who had come in about six months ago, uh, husband and wife, and had left their their twins, their nine year old twins, at home. Um, they came in with their twins and they had they had brought their twins here because the, the parents were politically active in Nicaragua. The government folks came to the house and threatened to take the kids. What would you do? Would, I mean, would you bring your have your kids smuggled into the country? That's what they did. What would you do to protect your family if there was a country further north that would where you where you would be safe? What would you do? And that's the great conundrum now is we have what we haven't had for a lot of the 90s and a lot of 2000s, a great deal of political turmoil on our southern border. We used to get a lot of immigrants that were like migrant, economic migrants, Mexicans mostly, because their country just didn't have jobs. That stopped. That stopped in the 2000s. And so we didn't have a lot of people coming in because everything was pretty calm in, in this hemisphere. And now it's not. And the solution is not necessarily to have more judges or more deportations. It's to figure out how we can help countries resolve their problems so people stay home. That is ultimately the solution to this problem. Now, I will lay one more thing. The day that nobody wants to come to America is a day we should all be concerned about. And that's not today. And that's a good thing for America. We're still attracting people because of what Reagan called us, the shining city on the hill. That's important to keep in mind as we talk about this issue. Chuck, um, let's go back to this Biden policy before we leave the subject. Um, is this a smart policy? Is it a policy that has potential? Can the president and his administration operate it um, without fear of being demonized to the point where it becomes a political, it makes them politically, paral it, it paralyzes them politically? Well, I will tell you, the program is actually working. 
Um, we've already had 1,400 people come in from uh, from Cuba onto this new program. The Venezuelan program has been great. Think about it. this is the chance for people who want to help refugees to stay. You don't have to be related to these people. You can say, I want to help somebody. So this is actually a very unique experiment in democratizing how how immigration works. And perhaps it's it's cutting edge if Congress could take this and say, maybe we give states 10,000 visas to the states can say, we want to bring immigrants here. Iowa, Iowa, Utah, they would love this program. So I think this could actually be a pretty smart move on the part of the administration, but it's not going to solve the problem yet. Well, and, and that's the final question. We, we I just conjured up the image of these uh, migrants waiting and living on the streets with their children in El Paso. And El- that's a different situation entirely. What do we do about that? Well, that's where the federal government, I think, has to be involved. I mean, you can't put that on the cities. You can't put that on the states. Federal government needs to have funding that uh, provides for shelters, provides for process. Um, we already have that system. It's the refugee system. It exists. Uh, we just have to expand it and fund it. That's So this is, again, not an unsolvable problem. It's not unsolvable. It's going to take a little bit of political will and a little bit of action on the part of Congress. All right. I got to get the final break. But tomorrow, you know, that takes it back to Congress. I, I don't see a whole lot of will among Republicans and Democrats to provide the funding that Chuck Cook is talking about. Remember, these members of the House are reelected every two years. They're in heavily gerrymandered districts where the, the biggest uh, political competition they have is to their left or to their right. You know, it's it's within their own party. And so they are politically incentivized to not negotiate on this. It is seen as a weakness if you give something away to the other side. So it's it's so oh, such yeah. an oh. problem. Yep. It, it's just it's it's so debilitating to think that we cannot try to solve these gigantic problems that face our country. Okay, I don't want to go off on a soapbox and lecture, so let's get to a break. We have more to come on Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. A quick add to our conversation about uh, what we do about over-policing in the wake of the Tyree Nichols uh, murder. Uh, our good friend Amy Steigerwald's listening to the conversation, and she sends us a, a really interesting note. She says, the job of police is not to prevent crime. It is to catch criminals after a crime occurs. We want to do the former, and that's where the issues arise, which is interesting because that is sort of what the whole purpose of things like the Scorpion unit and the Red Dog unit were. So thank you for sharing your thoughts on that, Amy. All right. Tamar Hallerman, um, there is now a really big push for, among Democrats in the South to bring the Democratic National Convention to uh, Atlanta uh, next summer. And um, Greg Bluestein has a good piece on it uh, in, in the paper today. More than 60 officials signed a letter saying that picking Atlanta would, quote, inspire Democrats in other competitive states to run, to organize, to fundraise, and to volunteer in what is now truly fertile 
democratic territory. And then he said, uh, the uh, quote says, um, I, I just lost it for a second. Um, selecting Atlanta will put Republicans on notice, making it abundantly clear to them they'll have to compete and alloc- allocate resources across every corner of the map if they want to keep pace with the gains that Democrats are making. So uh, this letter was signed by the mayor of Houston, whose city until uh, last week was in contention, and now he's saying bring him to Atlanta. Uh, It's going to be interesting to see if this happens, and Georgia makes sense as the newest swing state, really, in the southern tier of the United States. Yeah, I mean, lots of heavy hitters advocating for Atlanta. You mentioned the mayor of Houston. Um, the name that jumped out at me, uh, Congressman Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, mm. an elder statesman of black political power mm. in, in Congress. And frankly, the man who I think Joe Biden, more than a lot of people, owes his presidency to. Um, Jim Clyburn helped rally black Democrats, especially around Joe Biden after uh, Joe did not do well in the did not win the Iowa caucuses or the New Hampshire primaries. And South Carolina truly revived his candidacy back in 2020. So when Jim Clyburn talks, Joe Biden listens, as he should. Um, Also, Senators Tim Kaine and Mark Warner from Virginia, uh, former senators from Alabama, Louisiana, Arkansas. Um, It's a huge push. And obviously, they're arguing the symbolism of picking Atlanta would show kind of how ascendant the South is as a political power uh, in Democratic circles. And I mean, for Georgia, there's also the economic argument. This would bring 50,000 people here who'd be spending money at our hotels in our restaurants, going to tourist sites. Um, So obviously it'd be a big boon for the city. And, um, you know, given that President Biden wants to move up Georgia's place in the the political primary system, um, I I wonder if we'll see the same thing for this. Chuck Williams, uh, you and I are both old enough to remember the last time the Democrats brought a convention to Atlanta. It was 1988. The nominee was Michael Dukakis, which, by the way, proves that uh, bringing a convention to your city does not guarantee that the nominee is going to be propelled (laughs) into the White House. I don't even, uh, Dukakis didn't even win the uh, 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 Georgia primary in advance of the convention, although at that point we knew the convention was coming to Atlanta. Bill, when you said Dukakis, immediately the first thing that popped in my mind was a head sticking out of a tank. I mean, that's oh, like cruel, it. Chuck. <laughs> cruel. Well, I mean, cruel. That, I mean cruel. you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry that that's that we are old, Bill. That when that's the first thing you think about. But you know, it's. I can remember I was at the newspaper at the time that came the Columbus Ledger Inquirer, and you know. Knight Ritter, that was back when it was a Knight Ritter paper. Knight Ritter made an enormous investment in covering that. And I think you will see, I think it would be good for those of us journalists that are Georgia journalists that would like to get a taste of the national political stuff because, you know, we've obviously been getting it for the last two years with the Senate primary, Senate and governor's races. It'd be nice to see the presidential race kind of roll through here. You know, Convention, political conventions uh, always promise enormous riches for the city that uh, hosts them, and, and they are valuable, although there are many people. You know, one of the things that a, that a city has to promise, for example, is transportation, free transportation, buses and uh, uh, private uh, vehicles. 
Well, I'm grateful we have the trolley to take care of transportation. I think this would be a fantastic thing for the city of Atlanta. Uh, I think it'll, it will help bring people together. I think the protests will be entertaining. Uh, I think it just could be a, a great thing to do. And it, what really, what's better than a big political campaign in the middle of campaign season? I mean, really, it's going to be great. All right. So no uh, I, 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 I'm just back. I don't know that you all have gotten this explanation if you're listening, but GPB lost its internet entirely for a couple of minutes. And so that's why we're off. But it sounds like I just uh, got mine back. Chuck Cook, it sounds like you took over and you're doing a good job hosting the show no, in these tomorrow, final two tomorrow minutes. Tomorrow was in charge. <laughs> uh, I, I apologize. First of all, I apologize to the panel because our conversation today has been just absolutely rich and wonderful, and I'm sorry it got cut off. Uh, I do want to, with a couple of minutes that we have left or less, you know, we did a show last Friday about anti-Semitism in the United States about the history of Jews in Georgia and the anti-Semitic incidents here. Um, and Esther Panich, Representative Panich, was one of the people on the show. She's introduced a bill to define anti-Semitism, <clears throat> which would allow it, if it's put into law, it to be uh, 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 considered as part of hate crimes legislation. There's a hearing on that bill, House Bill 30, this afternoon, so we'll be following it and following up on the show we did last week. Before we leave you today, I wanted to point out that there's a number of special elections for legislative seats going on today across the state. The one that we're following most closely has Cherie Ralston, the widow of former Speaker David Ralston, who died so unexpectedly last November, facing off in a runoff against Johnny Chastain. Cherie is the director of the Fannin County Development Authority, and uh, Johnny Chastain is a banker in Blue Ridge and is a member of that same development authority. So we'll be, watch, we'll be watching that race with a lot of interest and have the results for you on Political Rewind tomorrow. We'll also have an update on a story that we talked about last week, the efforts of a mining company to begin mining for titanium at a location not far from the Okefenokee Swamp environmentalists believe that that operation could irreparably damage the ecology of the swamp. And there's some news to report on that as well. Chuck, uh, uh, Chuck Cook, uh, Chuck Williams, uh, Kendra King-Mammon, and Tamar Hallerman, thank you for a wonderful conversation today. I'm terribly sorry that things went wrong at the end, but you all were great. We're out of time. Back again tomorrow with a brand new show. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy, everybody.